Gondor needs no king. These were the words uttered by Boromir, the great captain of Gondor and the son of the steward of Gondor upon meeting Aragorn, the true heir and future king of Gondor. Some of you will recognize that I'm talking about Lord of the Rings, which is a strange way to start a sermon about the Bible. So let me back up a bit and give you some context and I'll explain why I wanted to start here. In the world of Lord of the Rings, Gondor was a powerful kingdom with wise and noble kings. But one day, those kings died out and the people were heartbroken. Doing the best they could, the people of Gondor entrusted a family to rule as stewards. Think prime ministers. They were charged to keep the kingdom going until the prophesied king returned. For generations, the stewards did the best they could, building up the armies and cities of Gondor, innovating Gondor's culture and technology, but all under the premise that they were just placeholders until the king should return. But that's where our opening line comes in. When Boromir, the son of the steward and the captain of Gondor, the one who was supposed to be the most patriotic of all Gondorians, when he meets his returned king, what does he do? Does he weep tears of joy, shout triumphantly? No, he looks at his rightful king and sneers. Gondor needs no king. This is sad. This is disappointing. But what I want to suggest to you today is that Christians run the serious risk of being like Boromir when it comes to our faith in Christ. See, Boromir outwardly in all his words and speeches would have been all about the king. He would have spoken optimistically about the king's return. He would have encouraged his people to hold on and look to their coming king. But when the king finally showed up, when it was time to see if his actions matched his words, we saw his true heart. Boromir felt that Gondor moved past its need for a king. Sure, kings were great, but when it came down to it, Boromir would rather trust the armies and fortified cities of Gondor, his own efforts as a captain of Gondor, his father's rule as the steward of Gondor, all this rather than the true and rightful king of Gondor. Boromir's words long for a king, but his heart believed that Gondor outgrew its king. Hence, Gondor needed no king. Believer, I want to ask you now, are you like Boromir? Do you talk constantly about Christ? Do you praise him and thank him for all that he has done for you? But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to your actions, do you live the life of someone who effectively believes you've grown past your need for Christ? Do you live as someone who thinks that you must improve on Christ to be truly spiritual, to be truly holy, and to have access to God? If we're honest with ourselves, that's a real danger. We're constantly tempted to believe that we need to improve on Christ in our spiritual lives as Christians. It's a big issue, but thankfully it's one that our text today explores, confronts, and corrects. We have lots to talk about now, so let's dive in. Follow with me as I read Colossians 1, 15 to 23. That's Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Let's learn why with Christ there's no room for improvement. Why with simple faith in Christ we have unmatched access to God, perfect reconciliation with God, and undefiled hope for the future. 
Let's learn how these truths confront our very real temptation to improve on Christ with created things, mystical practices, or political agendas. Let's learn how we can avoid being a Boromir who, when confronted with the king he was waiting for, ended up saying, Gondor needs no king. Listen and follow along as I read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What a beautiful passage. This passage is so beautiful and directly points to the absolute sufficiency and superiority of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. As we dive deeply into the beauty of this passage, let me directly give you a roadmap of what we're doing and where we're going. The first thing we're going to do is lay out the context of this passage. We're going to see how this passage wasn't just meant to define our Christology, our doctrine of Christ in a vacuum. This text was meant to confront some serious challenges facing the audience back then and us today. Second, for each movement of this passage, I'm going to let the text speak for itself. I'll explain some of the key terms that might be a little confusing initially, but apart from that, my goal as a preacher today is to truly step aside and let our text, God's word, speak powerly, powerfully for itself. As God says in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Let's see that in action. Finally, for each movement of the text, I'm going to provide some critical illustrations, including personal ones, stories and examples, which I hope will show how this text identifies, confronts, and corrects very real temptations in the lives of Christians today. But don't get me wrong, this is a sermon for everyone. If you're an unbeliever, a seeker, or a, I don't know, listening today, I pray that this sermon will show you how and why Christ alone is worthy of your worship, trust, and hope. Nothing else compares to him. For the believer listening today, the one who agrees that Christ alone is worthy of your worship, trust, and hope, I want you to walk away today equipped to live that profession of faith out fully in both word and deed. I want us all to embrace the reality that when it comes to your spirituality, your religion, or your standing with God, when it comes to all of that, 
All you need is Christ. There is no room for improvement. All you need is Christ. All right, here we go. Context time. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, as the name would suggest, to Colossian Christians. This was a Christian community, likely not established by Paul, so he was already speaking to an established community that needed to be strengthened in their faith. Why specifically did they need to be strengthened? Well, this is something that gets unpacked later in the letter, but essentially Paul is responding to the Colossian Christians struggling against a powerful new false teaching. This false teaching would tell believers that while Christ was important, if they truly wanted to be spiritual and holy, they would have to follow a bunch of other additional traditions, philosophies, and spiritual practices. Essentially, they were struggling with the idea that Christ was certainly great, but great as a starting point, not the end-all and be-all of faith. So that's where Paul came in. It was his apostolic mission to let this struggling Christian community know that Christ indeed was the end-all and be-all of their faith. That simple trust in Christ wasn't something mature Christians graduate from. That faith in Christ wasn't something we must augment or improve with fancy rituals or mysticism. That Christ was truly sufficient. And one of the ways Paul communicated that, as we read in our passage now, is to remind the Colossians of who Christ really is. He wasn't just a nice guy or a cool teacher. He was and is the cosmic Lord of the universe, the reconciler of creation, and the hope of the true gospel of God. Jesus's ministry isn't something you can improve on. Having Jesus as your Lord and Savior isn't just the beginning. Growth in faith doesn't mean getting fancier or more elaborate with your spirituality. Rather, growth in faith means diving deeper and deeper into the gospel simplicity and the unchanging truth of Scripture. Again, Paul's teaching here wasn't just an abstract truth. It was meant to be a concrete fact which demonstrates that with spiritual life in Jesus, there is no room for improvement. So now, let's dive into Paul's teaching. Let's see what he says. Let's see how it confronts our temptation to move past, graduate from, or attempt to improve upon Jesus. Follow with me again as I read verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The point we must take away from this teaching is that we can't improve on Christ with created things. Let's unpack that. The focus of the movement of this text is the opening lines. Christ is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of creation. What do those titles mean? Firstly, Christ being the image of the invisible God means that in Christ, humanity finally had and has the perfect revelation of God. As one commentary puts it, 
To say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in him, the invisible has become visible. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know how big of a deal this is. We have repeated stories with Abraham, Jacob, and Moses, the heavy hitters, the heroes of our faith, how they were unable to see God as he was completely. While they would encounter God intimately, it would always be through mediated means. Think, for example, Moses interacting with God, surely, but God was present through the burning bush. This distance, this mystery, this what theologians call transcendence of God, was such a major aspect of the Old Testament that New Testament authors identified it as a key feature of God. Paul, in his other letter to Timothy, would praise God saying, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John would echo this by remarking in both his gospel and his first epistle how no one has ever seen God. The amazing thing about Jesus was that God was finally seen. The transcendence of God was finally and perfectly balanced by the intimacy of God found in Christ. The invisible God finally had his perfect image. He could be known in ways he could never be known before. All thanks to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's why Jesus could say to Philip in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But more than that, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. That title might sound a little confusing, but I assure you, that does not imply that Jesus is a created being just created first. To skip ahead quickly, Paul exalts Christ in verse 16 by explaining that Christ is the wisdom of creation. Put another way, all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Jesus is the creator. So, what does that mean that Jesus is also the firstborn of creation? Basically, if we were to dig into the Greek and the ancient Mediterranean culture, to be the firstborn spoke more of legal rights and authority. Put another way, Jesus is the heir of creation. Put another way still, imagine this. If God the Father was the developer of an apartment complex, he would have Jesus work as his manager. But everyone in the building would know that Jesus is no ordinary manager. He is the son of the owner, essentially the co-owner. When they see or speak to Jesus, they would know they might as well be speaking to the Father. Imagine that, but with all of creation. Jesus is the heir of creation. He represents God the Father to creation. In a way, cre the creation is his just as it is his Father's. So when we take that alongside Jesus's incarnation, his life among us, his call to lean on him as our shepherd, his promise to mediate and intercede for us in heaven, he makes God uniquely accessible. Jesus is the creator who entered his creation. He walked among us. He made the invisible God accessible. By doing this, Jesus counters a lot of errors God's people struggled with. For a long time, Literal idolatry was the great sin of Israel. 
In the Old Testament, people who struggled with their God being invisible, his access being limited, would create idols of gold, silver, bronze, and wood. Think of Israel with the golden calf. But also, think about world religions in general. How common is idolatry from statues of gods to icons of saints? As Paul said in Romans 1, people constantly exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And while Christians typically avoid literal idolatry, I want us to stop and think. How do we still foolishly struggle with turning to created things to attempt to increase our access to God? Perhaps you want to improve your prayer life. Maybe you want to find a way to make your prayers more holy before God. Are you tempted to think that using prayer beads or holding your hands in a certain way will make your prayers more effective? If so, confront the fact that you're trying to improve on Jesus's mediation with created things. Or take me, for example. As a kid, I was afraid of the dark. So what did I do? Every night before bed, I would put a Bible under my pillow, thinking that it might provide some spiritual protection from monsters. That was wrong. That was an example of me turning a good created thing, but horribly misusing it. I was reducing the Bible to an amulet of protection and trying to improve upon the protection I have in Christ. Big mistake. Another example. Do you do this with people? Take your John Piper, or your John MacArthur, or even your Paul Sadler. Faithful pastors, Christian examples worth listening to and taking seriously. And in the case of your local pastor, humbly submitting to in accordance with Hebrews 13, 17. Are you, seriously, are you misusing their ministry? If you're tempted to treat their word as divine law, their lives as divine examples, or their acceptance as divine approval, let me explain to you, that is a temptation to improve on Christ with creative people. That's the error of the cults. God's perfect image is seen alone through Christ. God's perfect representative and authority is Christ alone. Do not think that you earn more access or receive more revelation by treating your favorite pastor as if they were the mouthpiece or new prophet of God. Appreciate them rightly. And when you face the temptation to turn them into gods on earth, remember Colossians 1.17. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Don't think you can improve on Christ with created things or even people. All things are in him and hold together in him. Don't turn created things when you don't turn to created things when you literally have the creator. But let's move on. Follow with me as I read Colossians 1, 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here is what we need to remember and embrace. Jesus is the head of the church and our source of redemption. 
our terms in this movement are, in the text are a little more straightforward. So just some brief comments from me. Firstly, when Paul says Jesus is the head of the church, he doesn't just mean that Jesus is the leader of the church. While Christ certainly is the leader of the church, Paul's point is actually much deeper. Think of this verse saying that Jesus is the source of the church. To give some biblical illustrations, if we, the people of God, Christians, the church, were fruit on a tree, Jesus would be that tree. If we were branches on a vine, Jesus would be that vine. It's because of Jesus that there is a church. Jesus gives us life. Jesus sustains our life. We come from him and we must stay connected to him. Without Jesus, the church would be like a body without a head. Why? Let's look at that second point covered in the second half of verse 18. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. This draws us to Jesus's life, death, and to cap it all off, resurrection. Listen to this. Pay attention. We have life because Jesus, by his death and resurrection, saved us from death. I'll say that again. We have life because Jesus, by his death and resurrection, saved us from death. As one commentator explains, his, Jesus's, resurrection marked his triumph over the forces that held men and women in bondage. So as the firstborn from the dead, the resurrected one, Jesus saved us from death and the devil. As verses 19 and 20 go on to explain, through the events of the Easter weekend, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus not only saved us from death, he led us to life. He not only defeated our enemy, but he also provided peace with God. Through his brutal death on the cross, Jesus defeated his foes and took the wrath we deserved. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's scandalous. And that's the simple good news, the simple gospel we're all called to accept. There's no room for improvement. But now, let's be honest again and confront the ways we're tempted to improve on Christ's role in redemption. We don't like to talk about it, and we certainly don't like to admit it, but how are we tempted to turn to mysticism, Christian magic, to improve on the life and peace already perfectly won for us? in Christ. In my teenage years, I turned to ritualism to increase my life in God. After reading a biography of some famous Christian evangelist and desiring to be generally more holy, I thought I would embrace the discipline of praying on my knees. Praying on our knees could have many great benefits. It's something I still do. But for a time, I did it with superstitious objectives. I thought through the ritual of starting every day physically on my knees in prayer, I would appear more humble and therefore more worthy of mercy and peace before God. Big mistake. This text shows us through Christ alone, we already have perfect reconciliation with God. Because of what Christ did, not what I can do or come up with, do I have right standing with God. Through faith in Christ alone do I experience God's love and receive his life-giving blessings. So now, let me challenge you. Believer, where are you tempted to turn to Christian magic, to mysticism, to improve your standing with God? 
Do you think doing the Daniel fast will make you more acceptable to God? Do you think putting a cross up on your rearview mirror will make you more holy? Do you think doing the sign of the cross, being an emotionless stoic and getting into the world of spirits and angels will make you more holy? If so, you're trying to improve on Jesus with mysticism. You need to identify those patterns, those temptations, and confront them with the truth of our passage. Jesus is the head of the church, the firstborn of the dead. In him alone do we have life and peace with God. There's no room for improvement. Our last point now. Follow with me as I read verses 21 to 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Indeed, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Based on everything we just learned about Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, Paul now calls the believers to embrace and see how all of that shapes their identity in Christ, their salvation in the gospel. It's quite straightforward and taking the lead of our passage, I'm going to put it quite bluntly. Before Christ, we are evil in God's sight. We were rebellious sinners and we act like it. We utterly and clearly fell short of the glory of God. But because of Jesus's life and death and resurrection, because of God's grace alone received through faith alone, we who were once evil in God's sight have become holy in God's sight. It's so good. Let me just read verses 21 and 22 again. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Believers, that's the gospel. That's the faith. That's the hope we have in Christ. That's the hope only Christ could secure. That's the good news. That's the hope. That's the identity that no one could ever improve on. It's based solely and entirely on what Christ has done for us. There's no room for improvement. But as always, recognize and confront the temptation. In our verses, our passage concludes with the call to continue in the faith and not shift from the hope in the gospel. This is a call given for a reason. This is a real temptation that has and will continue to ensnare many Christians. Typically throughout history and in the present time, we are tempted to shift from the, the faith, the hope, and the gospel when we try to augment it or improve it with our favorite agenda. For Christians in the early church, after the reign of Constantine, after Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire, they were tempted to augment the faith, the hope, and the gospel by mixing it with the prosperity of the Christian Roman Empire. 
I'll leave you to imagine the spiritual trauma and the pastoral crisis when the Roman Empire collapsed in the most brutal and climactic of ways. Today, I think we're tempted to augment the gospel by muddling it with our favorite political agendas, what, whether that's on the left or the right. Picking two examples that hit home for me. Do you seek to improve upon the gospel by turning it into a message of small government, free speech, and personal rights? Do you attempt to improve on the gospel by augmenting it with messages of social equality and climate justice? I'm not making a comment on the merit of those causes as such, but I'm pointing out the temptation I think we have all seen and play out, especially in recent years. The gospel is simple. It's exactly what we read in verses 21 to 22. It certainly has implications for all of life, but the gospel is not and never will be a political or social agenda. It will never be proclaimed or extended by voting a certain way or funding a particular politician or activist. The gospel is about God's grace in Christ to undeserving sinners. It's the message of Jesus who lived and died to save his people. It's the message of the lamb that conquered sin and death. You cannot improve on that. The gospel is a greater message than any agenda or cause. Attaching it to any agenda or cause actually clouds it, diminishes it, or undermines it. When it comes to the gospel of Christ, say it with me. There's no room for improvement. And with that, we have reached the end of our passage. I hope you have heard its truth loud and clear. I hope you will allow it to confront you and correct you. If you're that unbeliever, seeker, or I don't know listening today, you just got a clear presentation of who Christ is, why you need him, and why you need nothing more. Without Christ, you are stuck in what we saw described in verse 21. You are alienated from God. There is hostility between you and your creator, and you need to be reconciled to him. But the good news is that the Jesus we presented today is the living God and he beckons you. He calls on you. Place your faith and trust in him. Know that he is all you need. Know that he is the image of the invisible God, and he has made peace through the blood of his cross. Embrace Jesus and receive life and peace with God. But if you are a Christian listening here today, believe it or not, I want you to embrace the exact same thing. Embrace Jesus but embrace him without reservation, without question, and without fear. Do not be like Boromir when he met the king he was waiting for. Do not be by your words saying that Jesus is sufficient, but by your deeds saying he is not enough. Do not seek to improve on Jesus with created things, mysticism, or any agenda. He is the cosmic Lord of the universe. He is the reconciler of creation. And in his gospel alone, do we have true hope for the future. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to Christ, there is no room for improvement. He's our King. Embrace his perfect, endless care, his steadfast and unfailing love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for passages like we have today. We thank you for including words in your scripture, which just remind us of the simple facts that in Christ alone, do we have all that we need for right relationship with you. 
Jesus Christ is much better than any created thing, much better than any mystical practice or Christian magic. He is much better than any agenda or cause. He alone is our hope. He alone is our salvation. And he alone is all we need to live a life pleasing unto you. May this doctrine of Christ, this teaching about Christ, fill our lives this week and the rest of our lives. May we go out knowing that we might have hope, that we might be comforted, that we might be secured, knowing that our creator, that our resurrected king, that our champion is seated at your right hand, interceding for us, mediating for us, filling us with hope and life for all that we face. May this truth dwell in us richly by your spirit and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I hope that you will remember this um, this passage, that as you're facing temptations to turn left or right, to created things, to mysticism, whatever it might be, that you might remember that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is superior, and that with Christ, there is no room for improvement. But that's all for today. For more messages of hope, visit us at www.gracebc.ca. Take care and God bless.